Well, good morning, and we're glad that you're here with us this morning as we start uh, a new series called Renovation. And as we start this new series, I have a question to ask you. What do the following have in common? What do the following have in common? Rehab addict, design on a dime, homes on homes, sweat equity, property brothers, and my favorite, the Vanilla Ice Project. Uh, What do they all have in common? They're all shows about home renovation. I mean, if you think about it, in today's world, we, you know, at least in, in my cable package, I have two whole channels, the DIY network and HGTV that is dedicated to home renovation, to yard renovation. And you know what? In every one of those shows, you know what the theme is? They make it look easier than it is, right? Uh, I mean, that, that you watch it in a half hour, they have their whole house done, and you get inspired. And you're like, all right, we're doing it. And a half hour in, you're like, I made a huge mistake. I made a huge mistake. They make it look easier than really what it is. Well, today, uh, we're going to talk about doing some renovation of our hearts and our lives. And as we begin this, this renovation series, uh, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some renovations that we want to make to our church building. If you were here in Sunday school this morning, you, you got to hear about some of those renovations, and, and we're excited about those renovations. But you know what? Our ultimate goal is not just renovating this building. That's not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to renovate this building to create an inviting space, an updated space so that people can, can, can feel comfortable coming here and be challenged by God's word and renovate their lives. See, that's not the goal just to renovate this building and have a nice building, but, but to renovate this as a tool to reach others so they could hear about Jesus, they could hear about his love for them and renovate their heart and lives by trusting him as their savior. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to to Colossians 2 and 3. Uh, We're going to be there in Colossians uh, this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, the Apostle Paul is is the writer of this letter to the Colossians. And and he he is the one that wrote this letter. And it's interesting, you know, uh, if anyone knows about life renovation, it's the Apostle Paul. I mean, after all, this was the guy that terrorized the early church in Jerusalem, going house to house, arresting Christians, and and not content with staying in Jerusalem. At one point, he said, you know what? Uh, I need to spread this this out of of, of reaching out and, and arresting Christians. And so he wanted to go to Damascus. And so he took his show on the road, so to speak, to to Damascus. And there he had a come to Jesus meeting. Remember, Saul was on the road to Damascus, and a light shone from heaven, and it blinded him. And he heard Jesus call, call to him from heaven and told him to go to Damascus. And when he went to Damascus, a disciple there by the name of Ananias came, and he prayed with him. And Paul received his sight, and, and the Holy Spirit filled him. And at that moment, he had a transformational experience with Jesus. He realized that Jesus was real. He realized the one that he was persecuting was was God himself, and he gave his life to God. And you know what he immediately did? He began to preach about Jesus Christ. His life was totally renovated, turned upside down, and he began to preach about uh, Jesus Christ. And so, so this is the same guy, the Apostle Paul, is now writing this letter to the church at Colossians, 
the church of Colossians, and, and he is writing a preventative letter. He is encouraging them to not let the false teachings of the pagan culture or the Jewish legalism influence their church and their lives. And the core of this false teaching was the belief that Jesus Christ was not sufficient for salvation. You needed to add something to Jesus Christ. It was works. And so Paul was writing them and and encouraging them to to not buy into the false teaching. And, And Paul gives us some thoughts on risen living renovation. Risen living renovation. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about that. And we need to start off with risen living. I mean, what is this risen living? Uh, what's the reality of this risen living? And in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And very simply, risen living is going from dead in sin to alive in Christ. That's what risen living is. Death because of our sin to life because of Christ's payment for sin on the cross. And we know that we go from death to life by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what risen living is all about. Because of Christ's work on the cross, he paid the price for our sin. When we trust him, we are alive. We are alive. We have eternal life. And that's exciting. Two weeks ago, Dan and I were away at a conference in Atlanta, and we were gathered with five or 6,000 other people to, to be taught and, 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 and worshiped together. And one of the songs that we sang just has been resonating with me for the last two weeks that, that I can't get out of my mind. It's a song called Our Great God by Casey Darnell. And, and, and the phrase that keeps, keeps coming back to my mind when I think about risen living is this phrase here. All our hope has been fulfilled, death exchanged for life. Perfect love has been revealed. Our God is alive. That's what risen living is all about. Our hope has been fulfilled because of Christ's work on the cross. Uh, We were spiritually dead, but because of our faith and trust in him, we are alive. Because our God is alive. He just didn't die on the cross. He rose again. He conquered death. That's what... And because of that, we, we can have risen living. John MacArthur says the God, that God forgives sins of those who trust in him and includes them in his eternal kingdom and glory is the most important truth of Scripture. We are forgiven. We are made alive. That's an amazing, amazing piece of truth. Risen living is just another phrase for genuine conversion. The single act of turning from our sin and repentance to trusting Christ, putting our faith in him. This week I I saw a a tweet that I I thought was uh, really talked about risen living. It said, religion is about bad people becoming better. Christianity is about dead people coming alive. That's what risen living is about. We are alive in Christ, and we know that, that not only are we alive now, but we will be alive with him forever in eternity. That's what risen living is all about. That's the reality of it. And so in Colossians chapter 3, Paul goes on, and he, he talks a little more about it. He gives us a reminder in the first half of verse 1. He says, since then, 
you have been raised with Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. And very simply, raised with Christ means we've been united with Christ. We are spiritually united uh, into Christ's death and resurrection at the moment of our salvation. That we are united with him. So we're raised with him. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we receive new life in Christ and the power to live that new life. And Paul talks about this new life a lot. And in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so Paul says, hey, you know, remember, you are alive in Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You are no longer dead to your sin, but you're alive. You're alive. And then Paul goes on and says, because you're alive, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. In verse, the second half of verse 1 and verse 2, it says, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. And he says, you know what? Because, you're, because you have this risen living, because you're alive in Christ, you have some responsibility. You need to set your hearts which basically means you need to keep seeking. It's a continuous action. You need to keep seeking. And, and I guess the question is, well, what do we keep seeking? Well, he answers it, to it for us here in the beginning of Colossians 3. He says, you need to keep seeking the, the things above. And things above are heaven. And the spiritual values that characterize Christ, our risen Savior, who is alive in heaven. So, so we need to, to keep seeking Things above heaven and the, and the characteristics of Christ, the values that, uh, that characterize Christ. John MacArthur said this, and I think this is a great uh, thought of when, it, when we're seeking things above. To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there and his purposes, his plans, his provisions, and his power. It's to view the things, the people, and the events of this world through, the eye, through his eyes with an eternal perspective. When Paul says, hey, set your hearts on things above, he says, you know what, be preoccupied with Jesus who is living there today. Be preoccupied with him and his characters and his values. So we're supposed to set our hearts on things above. And then he says, you know what, set your minds. So not only just, you know, keep seeking, but you know what, keep focusing on, keep thinking about, keep concentrating on those things of heaven and not of earthly things. And earthly things are material possessions or earthly values like prestige or position or power. Here Paul says, you know what? He says, Christians, you are alive in Christ. So your focus needs to be totally different. He says, don't focus on the things of this world but focus on Christ and his, the things that he values. So he's reminding us, he's reminding the Colossians that, that that's our responsibility. And the reality is, you know, what you fill your mind with is what you fill your life with. Think about that. What you fill your mind with is what you fill your life with. What you spend the most amount of your time thinking about, that probably dominates your schedule, your calendar because it's the most important thing. It's the most important thing to you. And so what we spend our time thinking about is what we're going to spend our time, you know, filling our life with. 
And so Paul says that, you know what, as, as people who have experienced risen living, who are alive in Christ, focus, set your heart, set your minds on things above. Paul goes on in verse 3, and he gives us a reason we need to do this. He says, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died, and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. And, and, and he says, you know what, you died, and, it's, and that's past tense. You've already died. You've died to sin, and that death took place at salvation. The wages of sin is death, so we must die. But by trusting Jesus as our Savior, we die the required death in him. Thus, the penalty of sin has been paid on the cross. Jesus took our place on the cross, endured the punishment for our sins, so we could have a permanent place in his family. Christians die to sin when they place their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so we have died when, when we accepted him as our Savior. You know, we have died to sin. And Paul goes on and says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We're hidden protectively from all the evil force, from all the spiritual forces of evil. It says we are eternally secure as believers. And Paul talks about this in, in a great passage in Romans 8. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It says, what then? Shall we say in response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Knowing all things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, you know what? You are alive in Christ. You're alive in Christ, and you are hidden with him. You are eternally secure. They cannot take that life from you. They cannot separate you from your loving God. And he's telling the Colossians, and he's telling us, you know what? That should be an encouragement to you. That, that should make you excited that we have this life and no one could take it away from us. They can't do anything to take that away from us. And finally, Paul gives some revelation in verse 4. It says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. He's talking about glorification. Paul's talking about glorification. He's talking about the ultimate perfection of believers when, when we will no longer struggle with sin. Christ is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven, but one day he will come back, the second coming, to take his people home. When Christ is revealed as his second coming, we will also be revealed with him in glory. Uh, Paul is just telling us, you know what, uh, we have a future because we're alive with Christ, we have a future. We will be with him forever. We will be in our glorified bodies. We will no longer struggle with sin. And we'll live forever with him in heaven. 
And there in verse 4, Paul, Paul describes Christ, Christ as our life. And I think that's interesting. He says Christ is our life. He doesn't merely give life. He is life. And the key to the Christian life is to have our lives centered on Christ. Our focus, uh, our concentration should be on Christ, not the cares or concerns of this present world. That is what risen living is all about. And so Paul starts with these first four verses in Colossians 3, and he says, You are alive in Christ. You're no longer dead to sin, but you're alive in Christ. You have this risen living. But even though we're alive in Christ, we know that we still live in a sinful world and we still struggle. We still struggle with temptation and the lure of sin. And so now Paul gives some risen living renovations. He, he gives some, some uh, advice on some risen living, risen living renovations. And first he starts with some demolition. He starts with some things that we need to, to, to demolish in our lives. And it says in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And so here Paul starts off and he says, Hey, you need to put to death. Basically, you need to destroy. You need to demolish a few things in your life. So there's some things that we need to get rid of. There can be no holiness or spiritual maturity when sin is prevalent. And so Paul says, hey, we need to demolish some sin in our lives. We need to get rid of some of the things that pull on our lives. And he says, you need to put to death your earth, earthly nature. And this means members or parts of your earthly body. And so some people say, well, what is he saying here? Is he saying, you know, we need to put to death the members of our body. So, you know, if we're a thief and we steal something, just cut off our hand. It's not exactly what, he, what he's talking about. But, uh, but, but what he is saying is, you know what? We can either give our, our lives as instruments of, uh, of sin and wickedness. Or we can li- give, our, give our lives as instruments of righteousness to God. And the choice is up to us. What are we going to do with our lives? Are we going to offer our bodies as an instrument of sin or an instrument of righteousness? And that's a choice we have to make each and every day. And so he says, hey, we need to put to death, we need to destroy and demolish some sins in our life. And then he gives two lists of sins that that we need to kill or destroy in our lives. And these aren't exhaustive lists of sins, but I think these uh, these cover a a lot of common areas that we struggle with as believers. And the first area uh, group is some sensual sins. And he starts off and says, hey, we need to put to death, we need to demolish sexual immorality. We need to get rid of sexual immorality, and that's any form of sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Paul's pretty clear, and he, and he, and he hits us hard from the beginning. He says, you need to get rid of sexual immorality. In the ancient world, the Colossians were living in, and even in our culture today, our world has no problem with sexual immorality. They say it's normal. They say it's natural. They say it's no big deal. But the Bible's pretty clear, and it forbids any kind of sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And Paul starts off and he says, you need to demolish sexual immorality. Any kind, any kind of sexual intercourse or sexual activity outside of marriage he goes on and says, after that, he says, you need to demolish impurity. 
You need to get rid of impurity. And this is, uh, this is contamination of character that's affected by immoral behavior. And we live in a world full of immorality. And we rub shoulders with immorality probably each and every day. And we see it all around us. And Paul says, you know, you need to demolish immorality. You need to not be contaminated by the world and the immorality of this world and, and let it contaminate your character. You can't do that. He says, demolish impurity. He says, demolish lust. He says, uncontrollable sexual impulses. Sexual passion carried out in the body. He says, we need to demolish lust. We need, we need to get rid of it. As, as people that have, are alive in Christ and have experienced risen living, we can't be people that are struggling with lust and, and giving in to lust. He goes, goes on to talk about evil desires, and that's uncontrollable sexual thoughts. We go from lust as uncontrollable sexual impulses to uncontrollable sexual thoughts with evil desires. And finally, he says, we need to demolish greed. And this is a longing to have what's forbidden. It's an unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. Greed is the evil foundation which all those other sins are built on. Because of our greed, because of our desire to have what's forbidden, all those others stem from that. And because greed places selfish and sinful desires above obedience to God, greed amounts to idolatry. It's idolatry. When we, when we sin, it's simply doing what we desire rather than what God desires. And that, in essence, is worshiping ourself instead of God. And it's idolatry. And Paul says we need to start, if we're going to have some risen living renovation, we need to demolish the sensual or sexual sins that surround us. We can't give in to them. We need to be different. We need to be different. But Paul goes on and, and talks about another list in, in, in verse 8 and, and 9, and he lists some social sins. And it says in Colossians 3, 8, 9, but you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So Paul moves on to some social sins, some very familiar ones that, that we see all around us. He says, but you must rid yourself of all of these things. He's saying, you need to take these things off. You need to take them off. They can no longer be part of, of who you are. And he starts off with anger, and that's a deep, resentful bitterness. It's a strong feeling of hostility. And we see anger around us all the time. And maybe we even see it in our life, that, that deep resentment and bitterness that we have towards someone because Ten years ago, they did something to me. They hurt me, and, and I'm never going to forgive them. We're angry, and that resentment builds inside us. goes on to rage, and rage is sud a sudden explosion or outburst of anger. It's, it could be a physical outburst or a verbal uh, outburst, but it's because of that that uh, we've never dealt with that anger. So we have all that bitterness inside us, and all of a sudden we just, uh, we just lose it in a fit of rage. He says, we need to take off malice. That's evil speech or actions intended to hurt or harm other people. We live in a pretty malicious society, right? If you hurt me, I'll hurt you. That, that, that's, the, that's the mantra of this society, you know, an eye for an eye. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. He says, we need to take off slander. That's false statements that damage a person's reputation. 
We, we purposely f- uh, spread false reports about people to damage their reputation or their position or how people view them. It says, take off, take off the slander. Paul says, take off filthy language. It's obscene or derogatory speech. And our world is filled with that. I, I, had, a, I, was in a, I had to go to court this week for, uh, I was subpoenaed to go to court for the break-in at the youth center. And I, and I couldn't believe it. I was sitting in the, in the hallway of the courtroom. And the officers and the detectives and the, and the lawyers were using such language that was just atrocious. It was filthy language. And I'm sitting there in this professional place, just appalled by the language that they had. There was no reason they needed to use those words to communicate what they were trying to communicate. I just couldn't believe, and we're surrounded by filthy language, and all of a sudden, you know, then, then we adopt some, don't we? Uh, we just change it around a little bit. We come up with, you know, our Christian version of some of that. We're affected by that, and it says, Paul, Paul says, take off that filthy language. And they says, don't lie to each other. And this is not telling the complete truth not telling the complete truth. And I think a lot of times as Christians, we think, hey, we don't lie, but you know what? Do we always tell the complete truth? Think about that. Husbands and wives, do you always tell the complete truth? This is how much it really cost, or this is, this is what, uh, what I was really doing. Do we always tell the complete truth, or do we just kind of generalize and make it look good? But it's, lying is not telling the complete truth. And lying characterizes Satan. It doesn't characterize God. So Paul, here in Colossians 3, he gives us a, a list of things that he says, you know what, you need to demolish. You need to get rid of these things. You, you need to take, out, uh, take off, get rid, destroy these, these sinful characteristics in your life. You cannot choose to live like that anymore. And after he goes through and, and tells us some things to demolish, he then gives us some things that we can rebuild, some renovations that he wants us to put in our lives. In verse 12 and 14, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive what other grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Here Paul says, you know what, first of all, he says, we're God's chosen people. We're God's chosen people. Just think about that for a second. We didn't choose God, he chose us. He chose us, he elected us, he drew us to himself. Just like Adam, we chose rebellion. We chose sin, but God chose rescue. We chose rebellion. God chose rescue, and he drew us to himself. That's amazing to think about, but we're God's chosen people. Not only his chosen people, but he wants us to be holy. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be set apart and different than the world around us. He says we're dearly loved. God loved us so much that he sacrificed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins so we could experience salvation. So Paul says, as he's starting to say, hey, you know what, you need to rebuild your life. You need to rebuild your life with these things, but think about it. You've been chosen. You're holy. You're loved. So fill your life 
with these things. He says, clothe yourself, put on these things. Your life should be covered by these things. He starts with compassion. That's a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. Are you a compassionate person? Do you care about other people around you, other people in your life and what they're going through? Or do you only care about yourself? Paul says, you know what? You need to put on compassion. You need to have a a, a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. And then he moves on and says, you need to put on kindness. And this is compassion in action. This is a benevolent and generous action. This is, you know, hey, when, when you have compassion for someone and you feel bad for their situation and the difficulty they're going through, then, then you're going to engage and get engaged and do something about it. You're going you're to be kind and, 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 and act on that kindness. So when people think about you, do they think you're a kind person? Would they say, hey, you're a kind person? That you're benevolent and generous in your action. Paul says we need to put on humility. And this is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. It's looking out to the needs of others. It's saying no to our rights and trying to, to help others. It's putting on the attitude of Christ that he had towards others. He humbled himself and served other people. So the question is are we humble? Are we willing to do whatever we can to serve somebody else? Or are there some things that we just won't do? I, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. He goes on and he says, after humility, he says, put on gentleness. And this is a willingness to suffer injury instead of afflicting it. When I think about a gentle person, I think, I think of someone when someone you know, is, is, gets in your face and, and, and is giving you a hard time and attacking you, do you give it to them back? Or do you just gently take what they're saying and respond calmly? Respond in a way that's, that's uh, uh, calm and collected and not just fly off the handle. It's a willingness to suffer injury instead of afflicting it. It says, put on patience. We need to face difficulty or hardship without complaint. We need to be patient. We're willing to go through whatever we need to go through without without complaining. We need to bear with one another. It's being, being faithful and enduring difficult times, that when someone's going through a difficult time, you don't give up on them. You endure it with them. You go through it with them. You don't give up on it. And finally, it says we need to forgive one another. That's to graciously pardon. And he, and he says we need to forgive. Why? Because Christ forgave us. And when I think about forgiveness, I think, you know what, I'm quick to claim God's grace and God's forgiveness. Whenever I mess up, you know what, I'm like, I'm thankful that I have a gracious and forgiving God. But you know what, when someone harms me, I'm not real quick to extend that grace and forgiveness back. I'm pretty hypocritical when it comes to that. And God says, hey, we need to forgive because Christ forgave us. And finally, he says, love. We need to choose to sacrifice for the benefit of others. Love is a choice. Love is choosing to put others' needs ahead of your own. It says we need to love. And love is is the foundation that all those other things are built on. You know, if if we love others with an agape love, with the love that God wants us to love, you know, we'll be kind, we'll be gentle, we'll be humble, we'll be patient, we'll endure with one another, we'll forgive with one another. So the question is, 
This morning, in conclusion, is how are we doing when it comes to our lives? How are we doing? It's easy to sit here. It's easy to point out all the faults and all the shortcomings of everybody else and say, hey, they, they, you know, they really need some renovation in their life. They really need to, God to work in their life. But the question is, how are we doing? In closing, uh, there's, guys, you can put up the list of those things that, that we, uh, uh, we went through. We had some things that, that Paul says we need to demolish and some things that we need to rebuild and renovate in our lives. And as you look at those things, I want you to ask yourself, what characterizes me in my life? Are there any areas of those things that need to be demolished that I really need to work on? Or maybe are there some of those areas when it comes to renovation that I need God to really work in my heart and and help build into my life because I don't forgive very easily because I'm not a compassionate person. You know, in Colossians 3.12, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That's just an amazing statement. And Paul, Paul talks a lot in, in that language, a lot in diff, different other places. In Ephesians 1, 4, he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Not only are we chosen, but we're chosen for a purpose. When we as Christians fail to act differently from the world, we violate the very purpose of our calling. And if that's the case, if we look like the world around us, if, if we look like that first category, that first column, the things that God says we need to demolish, then, then we need to do some work because we don't look any different than the world around us. And that's not what God wants. That's not what he wants. You know, uh, renovation starts in our hearts. And it doesn't matter what kind of building we have. It doesn't matter how, how great of a facility we have. But if God hasn't renovated our hearts, if we are not different than the world around us, it doesn't matter who comes in these doors. Because if they see that, if they see we're just like everybody else, if they don't see God at work in our hearts, in our lives, they're going to walk out these doors and say, they are no different than I am. Why do I need their God? Renovation starts in our hearts. And the question is, the question that I need to ask myself this morning, and you need to ask yourself this morning is, is there any areas that I need to demolish and renovate? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge from Paul's life. And Lord, we're so thankful for Paul and his example and what he has shown us, a man who a man who, who was, was totally living for himself and living for, for sin and, and, and doing his own thing. And, and when you got a hold of his life and totally renovated his life, it turned it around. It changed it for the better. And Lord, we thank you for this, this letter that he's written to us today to look at and challenging us today. And Lord, I pray that... Uh, as we think about our lives, as we look into the mirror and look at ourselves and look at our hearts, I pray that you would help us to maybe identify some of those areas that we need to demolish. Some of those things that we need to get rid of. 
And Lord, I pray you also help us to identify some areas in our life that we need to rebuild and, and allow you to build godly principles in our life. Because Lord, you're so desiring to renovate our hearts and lives. You want us to represent you well. You want us to, uh, to point other people to you. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would give us the, the strength and the desire to do that this morning. In Jesus' name.